Well, how do we praise God's name in all circumstances, the good and the bad? When we designed this room 10 years ago, we wanted to be a place of worship and Bible teaching. We also created a space about three doors down called the hearth room, where we wanted to create a place for families to mourn together before funerals. And I remember just a few months ago, I was sitting in our hearth room with Kim, and she told an amazing story. She said, Chad, my husband and I and our family lived here in in this area in Cincinnati, and we eventually moved to Orange County. We lived in a really nice home, very affluent area, protected area, safe area. And one night, I'm sitting up on the second floor, and we hear some weird noises coming from the house. So my husband goes down the stairs. Apparently, he must have looked out the glass around the door, and what he saw was a giant tidal wave of mud coming down the street, coming into the door. He yelled up for the family, get out and get out now. It's the last thing she ever heard from her husband. She made her way down the stairs. She said, the mud wall burst through the door, pushed into the room and slammed her up against a wall. She said she could barely breathe as the mud was getting higher and higher and compressing her chest against the wall. Worse than that, the mud was moving in and out with glass and steel and rebar and furniture from her house, just beating up her, her legs and her, her gut and, and, her, and her body. She doesn't remember what happened next. She knows... The next thing she remembers is she woke up in her backyard with rescuers over top of her, saying, are you okay? Are are, are you there? Is there anyone else? And she said, my daughter, my daughter. Where is she? Where is she? And covered in mud and muck, she tried to point back to the house, but instead she pointed directly the opposite direction of the house in her disorientation. Well, all of the carnage from the mudslide was this direction. The, the, the rescuers would never have gone this direction had she not pointed, but they did, thinking she saw something and knew something. And so they traveled 10, 20, 50, 100 yards and found her daughter 100 yards in that direction, covered in mud, still alive. They pulled her out of the mud, rescuing her life as well as her daughter's that day. But to this day, they still have not found her husband. Or her son's body. Which is it was miraculous. That God in the midst of difficulty and tragedy. Allowed my daughter to be rescued. Because of an accidental pointing. So they had a funeral in Orange County. But they wanted to fly back here. And have a funeral here in our community. Because of so many friends who knew them. From this area. And I thought to myself. What in the world. Would motivate someone. To have a funeral for their husband or spouse twice. What what would motivate you to want to go through all the emotions of having a funeral for your son twice? And she said, I want all my friends to know in both areas that we've lived the hope we have in the gospel that I'm going to see my husband again and I'm going to see my son again and this is a tragic chapter in our life but it is not the final story. It was her desire to use her circumstances to glorify God and to proclaim the gospel to her friends and neighbors. And I was so humbled. And they invited me to speak at that funeral. And the passage I chose to speak on is the very passage we're going to look at today, which is Luke chapter 13, where God is going to make a a really unique connection on how you and I, whatever we're going through, whatever challenges we're, we're, we're facing, 
that the mission in our life needs to be connected to God's great commission. And that's where significance and purpose comes from. Because there's no greater mission in your life than to see your life through tapping it into and tying it into God's great commission of using your life and your circumstances to bring people closer to God and to display God in your life. And so today I want to show you three reasons that Jesus is going to outline why the church is more important than ever, why proclaiming the Bible is more important than ever, not thinking we're invisible and have all the time in the world is more important than ever, so that we corporately as a church know what it means to why do we exist and why are we here, but also personally. What would it look like for you and I in our current circumstances to tie our mission statement, our missional vision in our life to his great commission? The first reason that the church is more important than ever is because people are desperate for grace. Desperate for grace in a world of karma. They're just desperate for it. When they face circumstances, when when you face tragedy, most of us have one lens by which to look at our circumstances, which is God must be mad at me, God must be ticked off at me. The universe must be punishing me. And still Christians, I know 20, 30-year Christians who still think through their circumstances through the lens of karma. And Jesus obliterates the doctrine of karma over and over again. And this is one of those places where he's talking about an act of God or an accident. He pulls out the Jerusalem Herald and he's going to reference modern-day events in his day. Very uncommon for Jesus to reference news articles or, or circumstances that would have been in the local paper. But this is two of them. They were present at that season, some who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now I'm going to cover this passage twice actually, this week, and then I'm going to come back and give more detail next week, because I'm going to show you how it fits into the whole chapter. So I'm going to give you more details about Pilate, but Pilate was a tyrant, and long before we know him in the Jesus story, he was keeping control of Jerusalem. He would often steal money from the treasury, and to do that, the Jewish people were protecting their treasury, would, would try and protect Rome from stealing it. And apparently Pilate, who was very, very manipulative, takes some of these Galileans who are trying to protect the temple treasury, and he takes them up and slaughters them up on the temple where sacrifices were made to God. And this horrible event that's going on, this tragedy that's going on, and people are asking questions. Why does this happen? Why did bad things happen to good people? Were they really good people? Were they be punished? And Jesus says this. Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose, how are you processing this? What is the lens by which you see the circumstance? Do you suppose that these Galileans were, look at the word, worse sinners than other Galileans? Meaning the universe is punishing them because they deserved it? Because they suffered such things? Does suffering always mean that you deserved it? You did bad, therefore you got bad? That's karma. No, Jesus, I tell you, no. No, that's not how you see these kind of circumstances. No, that's not how heaven processes this. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When you go through difficult circumstances, there's a tendency, even if you don't say it out loud, to go, boy, God must be mad at me. God must be punishing me. The universe must be coming after me. I hear Christians all the time say, well, you know, just karma. Karma. Karma is one of the most insidious doctrines. It's held by Hinduism and Buddhism. And it overlaps just enough with the biblical concept of you reap what you sow that it sounds biblical until you think through it a little bit deeper. Because karma teaches that every bad thing that happens in your life is because the universe is punishing you for what you did in this life or the previous life. So when a hurricane comes through North Carolina, the universe is punishing the people in North Carolina for being bad in this life or the previous 
Does that sound very liberating? Does that ring true with your soul? When towers fall on top of people, when people get bloodied on, uh, by Pilate, it's because the universe is punishing them. And, and God rejects this doctrine. It was called in the book of Job the doctrine of retribution. Good things always happen to good people. Bad things always happen to bad people. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. You don't understand the world you live in. We live in a war zone where bad things do happen to good people. And good things happen to bad people at times. But God will ultimately put it right. And people are longing for grace. You want to know how to destroy your marriage? Live with the law of karma. Only give your spouse what they deserve and nothing more. You'll be divorced in six months. You want to know how to be a terrible parent? Karma. Only give your kids what they deserve. See, grace and mercy, which come from the Father, say that God is merciful. He does not give us what we deserve. That's mercy. More than that, grace, he gives us what we didn't deserve. So not only do we not get what we do deserve, we get more than we do deserve. Grace and mercy. And people are longing and hungry for grace and mercy in a world where they can only see through the lens of karma. And Jesus pulls out that herald again and says, well, let's talk about another issue in our day. He says, what about that tower? You know those 18 people on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were, here's the phrase again, worse sinners than all the other men in Jerusalem? Again, that lens of karma. In fact, it was interesting at that funeral that we uh, had here, one of the uh, friends of the, of the husband came up to speak and he said, you know, my friend always believed in karma. Now what he meant was, his friend believed in reaping what you sow. The Bible does say that when you sow good things, observed wisdom is more time than not, you will reap good things. Right? So there's some overlap in the reap-sow principle. But karma says, no, it's always that way. And the Bible adds in a lens of we're living in a war zone where bad things happen. And sometimes it happens because of somebody else's free choice. And sometimes it happens because we're living in a world that's currently controlled by the prince of the power of the air. And he's evil and he wants to do evil things. So the Christian worldview gives you a very nuanced way to look at life that doesn't give you the guilt of karma and the condemnation and shame that God is angry at me and God is punishing me. But rather God can work together all things for those who love him. And I'm telling you, people are desperate to understand how to process pain without the lens of karma. To know that God is for them regardless of what they're going through. And that's why Jesus brings this up. Second thing, he, he jumps off of this to sort of make the same point he made previously. That people are blind to eternity. Remember, this whole section has been following up with our whole last two chapters about what it means to be rich toward God. And being rich toward God, Jesus over and over again is saying, your time is short and eternity is long. And he's using these two examples to remind people to make the most of their life because you don't know how much time you have. He says, whether it's Pilate brutally killing the innocent or whether it's a tower that happens to fall over in 18 innocent people, we don't know how much time we have. I tell you, no, it's not because there were sinners. But you need to repent. He uses the word again. Or you will all likewise perish. The word repent is a fascinating word. So I speak on it probably once or twice a year when it comes up in a passage at the exploring service and whenever it comes up in our equipping service. When I spoke on it last time here at the equipping service, I had a woman who's a 20-year Bible veteran came up to me and said, Jen, I can't think of the last time I heard a message about repentance. It's kind of a lost word that... Seems a pretty important word not to lose. And I said, well, whenever the text calls for it, it's called teaching verse by verse through the Bible, is that you get to verses and you talk about them. You don't avoid subjects like repentance. 
But the word repent comes from a Greek word, metanoia. It's where we get the idea of metamorphosis, a butterfly transforming. And repent is not just a one-time occurrence. It's certainly part of it where you turn away from your good works and bad works and say, Christ is going to be my justifier. That's the first step of repentance. But repentance is a regular part of your journey of metamorphosizing, turning around your thinking about God, life, and yourself. When you think this world's supposed to be Disneyland and it's not, the Bible says repent and remember, no, no, this world's a war zone. Oh, that's right, that's right. I've got to repent of my thinking that God's supposed to make me happy and comfortable when he didn't make the Son of God happy and comfortable on the cross. Oh, I keep wanting the world to be like Disneyland, not a war zone, but I need to repent. Remember, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation and do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. I think God's angry at me. Metamorphosize your thinking. No, no, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Nothing can snatch me out of his hand. That's what repentance looks like. You change your thinking about the world and and realize and believe what God says is true. About God, what he says is true about yourself. Am I fallen without a doubt, but I'm also fully esteemed as a child of God in Christ. And God says, one of the things you need to really transform your mind is you're thinking about your life. I got all the time in the world. You don't have all the time in the world. He references two events, people who are blind to eternity. They're just blind to it. And he says, guys, you don't know how much time you have. Are you making the most of your life? We will all likewise perish if we do not repent. And another uh, funeral incident, this one goes back about 10 years ago now. We had an ER doctor who had just started attending our church. Didn't grow up in the church, never been in a Bible study. He started attending Bible study, and a group of guys were walking him through the Bible, and just it was exciting to see his hunger for the Bible. He spent years building his career, but not really getting into spiritual matters. And in the process of a couple of years in Bible study, he came to know Jesus. And he celebrated, and all the guys who were with him in Bible study celebrated. Well, I think it was his aunt passed away, and he asked... John Kirby and I to come to the graveside. As we sat at the graveside, it was literally he, his wife, John and I, but nobody else in town knew his aunt. As I was, I was praying and committing her ashes or her body to the ground, as I did that, I said, now this is the hope of resurrection, that one day we will see her again and she will have a real body and a real renewed mind and no more pain and no more sorrow. And just as Jesus had a fully physical resurrected body, so she t- will as well. He paused me. Hey, we believe that? (laughs) Like not just your spirit goes to heaven? I said, no, no. That's the hope of Jesus came back physically. He ate honeycomb and fish before his disciples. He hugged them. His body also had the ability to, to do things ours can't, control its own density, to be able to go up and down, to be able to change that law that allows you to pass through stuff. But it was also physical. He said, wow, I didn't know that. And just the hunger he had and the idea that the resurrected body of this woman he loved, you would see her again, but she could eat again and she wouldn't forget people's names again and she'd be fully restored, gave him such hope. It was in his mid to late 40s, a couple years later, continuing to go to church, continuing to really enjoy um, just soaking up God's presence and, and understanding the word, asking great questions. And one day there was a tragedy where his wife and his son came out and found him in his backyard, or front yard rather, doing some yard work. And like that, he perished. 
And then you meet with the family and you grieve together and you see again how God works in the midst of tragic circumstances. And you're reminded again that our time is short. So short. Shorter than it should be. Shorter than we want it to be. But eternity is long. And I was so glad that here is a friend who came to know Jesus because people invested their time in Bible study with him and asking his questions that he would understand resurrection and now he understands it more than you and I will ever know until we get there. And that is why the stakes are so high, why the church is more important than ever, why the Bible is more important than ever. I can't tell you how many Christians only see through karma, how many Christians who do not have the hope of the gospel to be able to understand when somebody dies how to rub the hope of the gospel into their grief. To know the hope of seeing grandpa again with a renewed mind or a spouse again with a body that's been restored from an accident. There is so much practical doctrine that's not taught. And that is why as a church we are so committed to teaching the Bible. We're so committed to saying, how do you take challenging Bible teaching and make it relevant so that we know how to process life? It's a book of life. Third aspect. The third aspect of why the church is so important is that people, Jesus tells us, coming right out of this, are expected to produce fruit in a world of fruitlessness. That people have almost lost the, the even thought that they should produce fruit. He says, you know, a certain man had a fig tree. And a fig tree almost always represents Israel in Jesus' parables. So he's talking to Israel. God prepared Israel for some things as a tree. Now, by application, it's going to apply to us, his followers now in the church. But the church and Israel are distinct. So as we listen to this, he's going to talk to Israel, but I think he's also by application talking to us. A certain man planted a tree, God is the certain man, in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it. And this phrase, seeking fruit, God expects us to use our dash to produce fruit. And he found none. And he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, 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 for three years. Hmm, three years of ministry Jesus had on earth. I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Time to cut this thing down. Why does it use up the ground? Why does it use up the ground? God doesn't want us spending our life using up our time for ourselves. When he comes to the tree he's planted, you think of everything he's entrusted to you. Opportunity, time, money, talent, skills, the Bible, the Holy Spirit. And God says, when I come, when your dash is over and eternity begins, I expect to see fruit. Did you learn how to produce fruit in your life? And it wasn't your fruit. Did you learn how to get close enough to the Holy Spirit that he produced his fruit through you? That you got to see, you became more joyful each year. You became more self-controlled each year. You had more and more shalom or peace in your life each year and gentleness and kindness. Are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you being conformed and sanctified? That's what he wants to find when our dash is over. But often people, the mindset is, hey, hey, I got my ticket to heaven, I'm fine. But you're not equipped to know how to take your, your justification the new position you have in Christ and, and work it out in everyday life. And Jesus says, I'm expecting fruit. More than that, when I knock on the door and say, hey, I want to take a tour of the vineyard, you shouldn't feel worried about that. Oh, don't go over there in the vineyard. Oh, please, there's a lot of dead trees over there. When Jesus comes, you say, oh, come to the vineyard. Look at this line of row of trees. This is how I use my time. 
I invested in kingdom matters. Here's how I tried to be a great spouse. And I put my time into being the kind of spouse you called me to be. And here's some ways in which I invested in my children. I want to be the kind of leader and the kind of uh, investor and nourisher and cherisher you called me to be. And let me tell you the way I took some of my time. And I led people that I knew, neighbors and friends, and had spiritual conversations. And they ended up coming to Christ. Look how I spent my time aligning my mission to your great commission. No, Jesus, come over. Look at this. Look at this row of trees. Look at how I spent my money. I spent my money on things that prepared for the future and my, my financial planning so that I wasn't a burden to my kids or grandkids. And God goes, well done. Look at the way I spent my money on God things. I love the church and I gave financially to the church, your bride. Come look at what's produced out of that. God, come, come look. I had a passion. You gave me a passion for the orphan. And look at the way I devoted my money to, to help orphans break that cycle. God, come look, and you are just can't wait to give God a tour of your vineyard because it's filled with fruit. Your time, your treasures, your talents. God, you gave me skills. It wasn't just about making a comfortable life. It was about creating a vineyard for your kingdom to draw people to yourself. God, enjoy the vineyard. That's the kind of joy he wants to have because we're so confident that we're living for eternity. Versus, could I uh, take a look at the vineyard? Oh, uh, could you come back? Can we go get some plastic apples or something to glue on that thing or some figs? Horizon is committed to teaching the Bible, not so that you can answer Bible trivia questions, but so that you are equipped to produce fruit in your life, individually and corporately, that people are coming to Christ, the Great Commission, evangelism and discipleship. And we get to hear stories every week about that. This week there were two. Woman's been going through uh, the Lord Changed My Attitude um, series for the third time. Saying, if you really need it, a third time. And she said how she's beginning to understand how naturally cynical and ungrateful we all are as Americans and as human beings. And journaling through our negative thoughts. Really trying to take that verse from Philippians to heart. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. And just the joy and the gratitude seeking fruit in her life. She said she went back to the first time she went through the series and was reading her notes in her journal. And she noticed how many of her anxieties and prayers were about her son taking his faith seriously. And this many years later, her son had come to Christ. Her son was dynamically involved in Bible studies and asking some tough questions. And I've been in small groups with her son. I've seen this work that's going on. She took a picture of that prayer from many years ago, sent it to him and said, Look at how God has answered my prayers by what he's been doing in your life and the fruit. He said, yeah, thanks, Mom. It's been an incredible journey. I just wish I'd started sooner. To which she said, you're in your 20s. You're starting a lot sooner than most. And God is going to use that fruit in your life. Last week I was uh, at a wedding for my daughter and then I interviewed a woman who did a book called Boundaries for Your Soul. And I was talking about talking to your soul and talking truth to your soul and, and, and sanctifying parts of your soul. As I did that, I talked about a part of my soul, an inner general that sometimes takes over when I'm stressed, and it can be something that can be very productive and very destructive in my life. After the service, a young man came up to me. He says, I've been in the service, I'm out, and I didn't really grow up religious, maybe a little bit of Jewish Judaism, but not much. I've been coming to Horizon for about six months. Chet, I need, I got a general inside me, and he's wounded, and he's hurt, and I only learned how to compartmentalize my soul in battle. I need to know how to connect to my soul. Walked him down, connected him to our men's ministry. It's happening on Sunday nights and Mondays. And we're trying to help someone find Christ for the first time or incorporate the love of Christ in their life. That's what this is all about. It's about connecting. 
And so part of what we've done in this series, Treasure Map, How to Be Rich Toward God, is we said, what does it look like for you to be rich toward God in the way you're living and what's coming out of your heart? We've also said this series about how to be rich toward God at Horizon, this unique season we're in. What does it look like for you not just to maybe attend and soak up, but to say, I want to use my time to serve in the children's ministry as a greeter. I want to get involved in, in maybe going on one of those mission trips. What does it look like for you to give of your treasure and to say, God, everything I have is yours. What would you have me do? Maybe you've been prompted. Maybe you have come and talked to Mark and said, I'm prompted. The $750,000 you're raising to put in video equipment so the tools for Bible teaching can go out beyond our, our walls, that we can begin to double or triple the equipping services. You're saying, you know, God, I want to give. I originally was thinking just a three-figure gift. You know, I can do better than that. I want to do four-figure gift or five-figure gift. I want to make a two- or three- or four-year pledge. I want to be part of creating tools so that people can be, find that grace and find the eternity and understand the Bible in a way they never have before. And I would just continue to ask you to pray about your stewardship of your life. What do your individual decisions look like as a husband, as a father, as a leader here at Horizon, here in our community, and here in the world? Because there is no greater mission in your life than connecting what you're doing to God's great commission, which is evangelism and discipleship. As we've seen in the chapters that were prior and the chapters to come, God is doing everything he can to get people to the great wedding feast. He is preparing a bride. And that bride is to be washed in the word, to be blameless and pure. And so as a bride of Christ, if you become a follower of Christ, are you washing yourself in the word to be blameless and pure, to be sanctified when you, when you meet him that day? And are you then taking what someone did for you because they built a relationship with you and are you creating environments to invite your friends to have questions and to ask about their doubts, maybe use the tool of our exploring service if it's helpful to to have the gospel presented to have those conversations. Because we want as many people as possible at that great wedding feast by connecting our life to eternity. And boy, that idea has been very true to me for the last six months as we've been preparing for my daughter's wedding. So we had a fantastic celebration last Saturday where my daughter is now not Sierra Hoven, but Sierra Strong. And I yeah, got some pictures here as my daughter and her, uh, her husband, it's weird to say, she and her husband. And as a surprise, we wanted to invite people in. So this wedding felt very Hoven-esque. So we said, hey, let's throw out all the tradition. What would we want to do if we invited 200 of our friends together? So we would have a family game night. So our reception, we played bingo. It had the word strong across the top, and all the letters were memories from their life. And we had a family feud, bridesmaids versus the groomsmen. We had a drawing contest. It was just so much fun. And then it came time to send off the bride and groom. A little surprise for them. The getaway car was the 1960s Batmobile that a friend of mine uh, had built for himself. And he said, I would love to let them use that for the getaway car. And we laughed, and we cheered, and we celebrated. And then it came time to tear down for the wedding. After all the work of six months getting everything together, you got two hours and everybody's running back and forth trying to get everything put together. And with that, people are stuffing stuff in cars and back seats and maybe not everything's going in the right direction. All of a sudden, my mom's like, oh no, panic, what? What's going on, mom? I can't find my phone. I know I left my phone in my purse right here before we left. Suddenly, everybody who's shuffling chairs, moving tables, everyone called together. All right, guys, does anyone remember touching this thing? We, we've got to all, despite all the activity going on, we've all got to focus on finding that which is lost. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. It was right here. No, no, I didn't see it. All, the whole organization, though there were important things to do, everything got focused on finding that which was lost. So we tried find my Android. No contact. <sighs> We tried calling it. 
The ringer must be off. We thought, well, maybe it's in one of the cars. We could hear it ringing in the cars we'd already packed. Didn't find it. Well, this summer, my dad, when we went on vacation, forced my mom and I to put this ridiculous app on our phone called Lifestyle 360, which allows you to track your friends and family while on vacation. So I can pull up a map, and I can see my dad's blip and my mom's blip and my blip. All right, Dad. So I sort of, you know, all right, I'll do it for the three days. And I immediately deleted it when vacation was over. Well, my dad pulls out that app. I found the phone! Everybody's gathering. We found the phone. It's on the move. It's currently headed down Wooster. So I jump in my car and I'm driving. My dad's on the phone with me. It's like CIA. He's the guy in the chair. All right, he's trying. They just made a turn on Newtown Road. Make a turn. I'm stuck in the light. Can't go yet. All right, all right. They just turned down. They're passing the Shell Station and they're heading down Round Bottom. I can't, the, the light's so red that you gotta go, Chad. I, I'm at the red light. I gotta wait. All right, I go down now and I'm tracking down. I get over to the Shell Station. I turn left. Okay, now they're heading to Dry Run. If they turn right, we probably know which person in the wedding party grabbed it and accidentally picked it up. It's probably so and so or such and such. I got my friend Peter's on the phone now too. He's like, all right, now so, so he's talking, my dad's talking, my mom's, what is he saying? What does he say? So whole conversation going on and I'm chasing. I said, you know what? Let me just download the app. I'm like, this is that app I told dad I shouldn't have done. Okay. I pull up the app. Now I'm like the CIA. I can see the phone in front of me. I'm tracing them myself on the phone. All right, I'll let you go. I got it. So I'm chasing them down. They pass dry run. Oh, they pass eight mile. Oh, and now I'm chasing them down. I'm, I'm quickly catching up and they get onto 275. Oh no. And I'm eliminating all the people I thought might have the phone. Then they get off of the next exit, it's Beachwood. And I have caught up, Beachmont rather. And I catch up and I get down the exit and the phone says they're right in front of me. Yes! Oh, but the phone was a little bit off. Oh, they're one light in front of me. I don't recognize any of the cars. And they're about to turn left. What's, what's left? A dead end. Now I'm thinking, what am I going to do when I show up and there's some gangsters <laughs> who have taken my mom's purse and phone? I'm be like, Hey! Can I have my mom's phone back? <laughs> so I turn to the left. I'm getting closer, but I can see some lights, but I couldn't quite tell if it was them or not. Turn out there's a side entrance to a hotel, so I'm feeling a little bit better. They go into the hotel. I'm looking for anyone weaving in and out, and I see some brake lights that just come to an end, and I pull up right next to them. And the window rolls down, the door opens, and my daughter's father-in-law looks at me and is like, Chad? <laughs> the whole family's like, what are you doing here? And then one of them said, by the way, we heard that your mom lost her purse and we're just sick about it. I said, well, good news. What? It's in your car. How do you know? We have CIA technology from an app my dad made me install. And they feel so bad. They're rummaging through the car. And sure enough, uh, dad, her dad uh, or Brandon's dad had scooped up purses of his daughter and his wife and scooped up my mom's as well. And he called me later that day when they traveled back to Missouri and apologized because his family harassed him the whole way home. And then we came back and we began to continue to equip and put the church back together again. And often what happens is the church gets so busy with activity, it doesn't stay focused on finding that which is lost. And that is why churches historically do one thing well, but not two things well. They either are really good at seeking the lost, but really poor at equipping people. Or they're really good at equipping people, but you've been hanging out in the Bible for so long, you don't even know anyone that you hang out with or friends with and have conversations with that are far from God. And so part of our church's mission, part of the Great Commission, is you have to do both. You can't always be chasing around the lost and never equip yourself. But you can't always be equipping yourself and not know how to pursue and engage with the lost. And that's what Jesus says here. And again, I'm going to unpack this more next week. But he says, three years, you're just using up the ground. But I say to him, hey, give me one more year. Let it alone for this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. God's going to bring some manure into your life. 
Because he wants to produce some fruit. And he's willing to dig into your life and carve into your life to put the nourishment in your life to say, hey, we want to see some fruit in your life. He's willing to dig up churches. In fact, you want to know a tragedy? What this beautiful building that was designed to facilitate teaching God's word could be one day? Head to Europe. Something that was supposed to be on mission becomes a museum. Hey, buy your ticket. Come see where they used to teach the Bible. Come see where people used to pray. Oh, you're going to love this. People used to actually find significance from God here. Oh, it's wonderful architecture. Or in America, churches closing down almost every week, they become microbreweries. Oh, man, wow, you're sitting in the pew and they've remodeled the place, big open space. And what a tragedy if our church became a museum or a microbrewery. But that's what happens when you're not on mission. When you're not continuing saying, God, what's next? How can we more effectively teach people how to build relationships, share their their faith story, design and exploring places where our friends can ask questions, and then equip us? In fact, when people ask often, hey, what's Horizon all about? I say, it's not about me. It's not about Drew. It's not about the building. Here's what our church is really all about. Right here. All of us on our spiritual continuum. And most people take steps one step at a time. And there's some point in our life that we did not understand God or the gospel. At some point we knew about God but not the gospel. We thought it was karma. I do good things, I get good things. I do bad things, I get bad things. Then someone introduced us, a friend, a neighbor, a mom or dad, a Sunday school teacher, a coach, introduced us. We took a step. It was one step. And then we took another step. And somewhere in that step, we eventually came to know Jesus as our forgiver. But then we didn't produce fruit because no one taught us how to, how to be competent in the Bible, how to, how to be so in tune with the Holy Spirit that the fruit of his spirit came out. But we began to grow. And then somebody else helped us take another step. We got into our first Bible study. We began to serve for the first time. We began to give financially for the first time. And God began to well up in us the fruit of his spirit. And many churches see this as success. Some churches, if you come to Jesus, that's it. That's all we're here to do and that's it. Other churches, no, no, no. We need you to be fully discipled. But that's not success. Success is when you are fully equipped to go back and invest your time, treasure, and talents into helping people know how to grow. And that you're so in tune with God's great commission that you know how to build relationships with people who are not yet followers of Jesus. And you're able to do it in a way that's not weird. And it draws people or woos people into those conversations. Not that you're turned off by you being some religious Bible thumper. That you know how to build relationships and and you haven't spent the last ten decades surrounding yourself just with Christians at your Christian soccer leagues and Christian this and Christian that. But you actually have friends, genuine friends that are different places spiritually. When you're able to multiply your impact, you're able to not only grow yourself, but you're also involved in helping other people grow. And this is what our church is about, creating exploring environments like our 10 and 1110 service. We are not satisfied with a church that just goes this far and then says, go, hope you can get grown in the Bible somewhere else. We want to connect people. We said we built this building, we'd rather have smaller environments and do five services than have one big environment because we want... Horizon Community Church, we're a place that people matter. We know people by name. The community is our middle name, and it really is one of our essential values and hallmarks. So even as we look at going to these video services, we said, why why not just build a big old auditorium? Because we want to keep that value. A smaller space and a smaller room and multiple services keeps that feel of community because we want people to feel connected. People know you by name. People recognize your kids are in the same soccer games. You run into each other at Kroger. Community is an important part of our aspect that we connect. And lastly, equipped. 
We're not satisfied with just people who come to know Jesus and know a few people. We want you to be equipped in the Bible. We want to be equipped in the difficult parts of the Bible. We, I have a 10-year scope and sequence I've been tracking for the last 15 years to make sure that all our services were continually teaching from the whole counsel of God. So I'm, I'm always tracking back and forth, and the teaching team and I are working together to say, what are the parts of the Bible we haven't taught yet at the exploring service and the equipping service? Because challenging Bible teaching is so important today in a world of biblical illiteracy in a world where people don't know how to incorporate the Bible and they end up either dry and dusty. I, I, I heard the Bible today. I just have no idea how to apply it. Or light and fluffy. I, I got some good stuff, but I don't really understand the doctrine behind it. It is a challenge to find deep and compelling. And what we are committed to at all of our environments and the new environments with these video services we're putting in place is how do we continue to tie our mission as a church to his great commission so that when he knocks on the gate of our vineyard, we cannot wait to let him in. Say, look at what you have done through our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this challenging message. God, I just confess how often I know better, but I think through life through the lens of karma and self-pity and victimhood. Rather than seeing you as a, a co-laborer who may be putting fertilizer in my life, maybe digging around some bad roots in my life because what you want more than anything is to see more of your spirit's fruit come out of me. And I ask for each person here, Father, that you would direct, you would convict, you would nudge, you would love, you would invite them to look at the stewardship of their entire life through the lens of eternity, how they can be part of what you're calling us to do as a church and individually in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in our families. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here.